All right, today is October 7, and I'm sorry, October 9, and I have found the perfect thing to read for my prayer intentions today. We're reading, dedicating this to St. Vincent de Paul. We're reading about the life of St. Vincent de Paul. This page formatted 2007, Black Mask Online, F.A. Forbes, blackmask.com. Produced by David Mech Clamrock, Nihil Upstead Francis M. Cannon Wyndham, Censor Deputatus, Impramajor Edmund Cannon Surmount, Vicar General Win Westminster, July 2nd, 1919. Wow. Prayer intentions. By Francis Alice Forbes. Luke, Psalms. Blessed is he that understandeth concerning the needy and the poor. The Lord will deliver him in the evil day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, wherefore he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the contrite of heart, to preach deliverance, to the captives, and sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of reward. Originally published in 1919, by R. and T. Washburn, Limited, London, as Life of St. Vincent de Paul in the series Standard, Bearers of the Faith, a series of the lives of the saints for young and old. Extend mercy towards others, so that there can be no one in need whom you meet without helping. For what hope is there for us if God should withdraw his mercy from us? St. Vincent de Paul Dearly beloved, let us love one another, for charity is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is charity. 1 John 4, 7 through eight.
End of introduction. We'll be right back with chapter one. A peasant's son. Should we do the table of contents real quick? Because it's really short. Only 11 chapters. Chapter one, a peasant's son. Two, slavery. Three, a great household. Four, the galleys. Five, mission work. Six, the gray sisters. Seven, the foundlings. Eight, at court. Nine, Jansenists. Jansenists. Ten, troubles in Paris. Eleven, confido. We'll be right back with chapter one. Chapter one. Blessed is he that understandeth concerning the needy and the poor. Oh, no, we read all this. Chapter one. A monotonous line of sand hills and the sea. A vast barren land stretching away in wave like undulations far as I can reach marsh and heath and sand sand and heath and marsh here and there a stretch of scant coarse grass a mash of waving reeds a patch of golden brown fern. It's called the Landies. It was through this desolate country in France that a little peasant boy, whose name was destined to become famous in the annals of his country, led his father's sheep that they might crop the scanty pasture. Vincent was a homely little boy, but he had the soul of a knight, errant, and the grace of God shone from eyes that were never to lose their merry gleam even in extreme old age. He was intelligent, too, so intelligent that the neighbors said that Jean de Paul was a fool to set such a boy to tend sheep when he had three other sons who would never be good for anything else. There was a family in the neighborhood, they reminded him, who had had a bright boy like Vincent and had put him to school. With what result? Why? He had taken orders and got a benefice and was able to support his parents now that they were getting old, besides helping his brothers to get 
on in the world. It was well worthwhile pinching a little for such a result as that. Jean de Paul listened and drank in their arguments. It would be a fine thing to have a son, a priest. Perhaps with luck, even a bishop. The family fortunes would be made forever. With a good deal of difficulty, the necessary money was scraped together and Vincent was sent to Franciscan school at Dax, the nearest town. There, the boy made such good use of his time that four years later, when he was only 16, he was engaged as tutor to the children of M. D. Comet, a lawyer who had taken a fancy to the clever, hard-working young scholar. At M. D. Comet's suggestion, Vincent began to study for the priesthood while continuing the education of his young charges to the satisfaction of everybody concerned. Five years later, he took minor orders and feeling the need of further theological studies set his heart on the university training and a degree. But life at a university costs money. However thrifty one may be, and although Jean de Paul sold a yoke of oxen to start his son on his career at Toulouse, Toulouse, at the end of a year, Vincent was in difficulties. The only chance for a poor student like himself was a tutorship during the summer vacation. And here, Vincent was lucky. The nobleman who engaged him was so delighted with the results that when the vacation was over, he insisted that the young tutor, taking his pupils back with him to Tosa. There, while they attended the college, Vincent continued to direct their studies with such success that several other noblemen confided their sons to him, and he was soon at the head of a small school. To carry on such an establishment and to devote oneself to study at the same time was not the easiest of tasks, but... Vincent was a hard and conscientious worker. He seemed to have had, even then, a strange gift of influencing others for good. For seven years, he continued this 
double task with thorough success. Completed his course of theology, took his degree, and was ordained priest in the opening years of that 17th century, which was to be so full of consequences both for France and for himself. Up to this time, there had been nothing to distinguish Vincent from any other young student of his day. Those who knew him well respected him and loved him, and that was all. But with the priesthood came a change. From thenceforward, he was to strike out a definite line of his own, a line that set him apart from the men of his time and faintly foreshadowed the Vincent of later days. The first mass of a newly ordained priest was usually celebrated with a certain amount of pomp and ceremony. If a cleric wanted to obtain a good living, it was well to let people know that he was eligible for it. Humility was not a fashionable virtue. People were therefore not a little astonished when Vincent, flatly refusing to allow any outsiders to be present, said his first mass in a lonely little chapel in a wood near Bajette, beloved by him on account of its solitude and silence. There, entirely alone, save for the acolyte and server required by the rubrics, and trembling at the thought of his own unworthiness, the newly made priest celebrating the great sacrifice for the first time offered himself for life and death to be the faithful servant of his Lord. So high were his ideals of what the priestly life should be that in his saintly old age he would often say that were he not already a priest, he would never dare to become one. End of page four. I think I'm getting sleepy now. Here we go. Last one. Vincent's old friend and patron, M. D. Comet, was eager to do a good turn to the young cleric. He had plenty of influence and succeeded in getting him named to the rectorship 
of the important parish of Thill, close to the town of Dax. This was a piece of good fortune which many would have envied, but it came to Vincent's ear that there was another claimant who declared that the benefice had been promised to him in Rome. Rather than contest the matter with the law courts, Vincent gave up the rectorship and went back to Tolis, where he continued to teach and to study. Some years later, he called suddenly to Bordeaux on business, and where and when they, while there, he heard that an old lady of his acquaintance had left him all her property. This was welcome news, for Vincent was sadly in need of money. His journey to Bordeaux, having cost more than he was able to pay. On returning to Tulsa, however, he found that the prospect was not so bright as he had been led to expect. The chief part of his inheritance consisted of a debt of four or five hundred crowns owed to the old lady by a scoundrel who, as soon as he heard of her death, made off to, to uh, Marseille, thinking to escape without paying. He was enjoying life and congratulating himself on his cleverness when Vincent, to whom the sum was a little fortune and who had determined to pursue his debtor, suddenly appeared on the scene. The thief was let off on the payment of three hundred crowns, and Vincent, thinking that he had made not too bad a bargain, was preparing to return to Tulsa by road, the usual mode of traveling in those days, when a friend suggested that to go by sea was not only cheaper but more agreeable. It was summer weather. The journey could be accomplished in one day. The sea was smooth. Everything seemed favorable. The two friends set out together. A sea voyage in the 17th century was by no means like a sea voyage of the present day. There were no steamers, and vessels depended on the favorable wind or a hard rowing. The Mediterranean was infested with Turkish pirates who robbed and plundered to the very coasts of France and Italy, carrying off the crews of captured vessels to prison or slavery. The day that the two friends had chosen for their journey was that of the great fair of Bucur, which was famous throughout Christendom. Ships were sailing backwards and forwards along the coast with cargoes of rich goods or the money 
for which they had been sold. The Turkish pirates were on the lookout. The boat in which Vincent was sailing was coasting along the Gulf of Lyons when the sailors became aware that they were being pursued by three Turkish brigantines. In vain, they crowded on all sail. Escape was impossible. After a sharp fight in which all the men in Vincent's ship were either killed or wounded, Vincent himself receiving an arrow wound, the effects of which remained with him for life. The French ship was captured. But the Turks had not come off unscathed, and so enraged were they at their losses that their first action on boarding the French vessel was to hack its unfortunate pilot into a thousand pieces. <sighs> Having thus relieved their feelings, they put their prisoners in chains, and then, fearing lest the prisoners die of loss of blood, and so cheat them of the money for which they meant to sell them, they bound up their wounds and went on their way of destruction and pillage. After four or five days of piracy on the high seas, they started, laden with plunder from the coast of Barbary, noted throughout the world at that time as a stronghold of sea robbers and thieves. End of chapter one. A peasant's son. We'll be back with chapter two of the life of St. Vincent de Pauli, de Pauli, slavery.